Ash Williams, Chief Investment Officer of the $161 billion Florida State Board of Administration. He's our 2017 Lifetime Achievement Award winner, and he's got his eye on the ball at all times. That ball, of course, being planet Earth and the markets and economies it contains. I'm Chris Butera, and today on the Chief Investment Officer Podcast, we're going to discuss the shape of the world in 2019, starting with hedge funds, which felt the brunt of 2018's volatility. The first thing is that hedge funds aren't an investment strategy. They're not an asset class. They're really just a fee structure and a business model. So I don't think one can have a view that's inherently positive or negative based on hedge funds based on those facts. If you perceive hedge funds in another way, then one might have a fundamental view. I don't have a fundamental view that they are anything other than a business model and a fee structure, so I don't think you can inherently say they're good, bad, or middling. I think what you can clearly say is that hedge funds broadly have changed in character. If you looked at the way hedge funds worked and what their performance more or less in aggregate was across the industry through several decades from the emergence of the first hedge funds going back probably to the 1960s and through the great financial crisis, you saw two characteristics occurring simultaneously with high frequency. The first was that these funds would perform in many cases over full cycles. They would perform as well as or even better than broad U.S. market equity indices. The second thing you would see was that they would put out that equity-like performance with a vol number that was a fraction of what the actual equity beta volatility was over that same backward-looking period. And the third and most distinguishing characteristic reflects the second, and that is during the great financial crisis when United States equities and, in fact, global equities fell commonly between 40 and 50 percent, depending on what market you were focusing on, hedge funds frequently fell significantly less than that, commonly about half that amount, and in some cases, notably CTAs, they actually had inverse performance from broad global equity beta and made a lot of money, up 40, 45 percent when the broad market was down a like amount. So hedge funds were perceived by many, including us, when we built our hedge fund portfolio at the Florida State Board of Administration. If you were building a portfolio like that in the immediate aftermath of the great financial crisis, which we were, I started with the view that hedge funds based on my own life experience, had a significant advantage because of their greater investment flexibility, being able to go long and short, selectively use leverage, get involved as appropriate on the activist side to to add value through ownership. Ash's former hedge days at New York firm Firtree Partners helped him notice these traits and develop a knack for using them to his advantage at his current post. So I came to the task with the perception that I would get largely equity-like performance, but at the same time capture defensive characteristics, a sort of a, a seemingly impossible combination of taste great and less filling, less risk but good performance over the long term. 
in fact, the experience has been for many institutions, including us, that while hedge funds arguably have provided the diversification, capital production, and volatility-mitigating roles that they were anticipated to play in an institutional portfolio, what they have not done is offered returns even roughly approximate to those of equity beta. The reason I said arguably about the defensive characteristics is until very recently, the past decade for the most part has been, as we all know, a broad bull market with upward pressure on equity valuations and very little inherent volatility. So the belief was, well, for many people, well, hedge funds have a real role in our portfolio because they're volatility mitigators and they will help us protect capital in down markets. Therefore, they will compound, they will help us on a total portfolio basis compound capital more effectively over full economic cycles. That was the value proposition that led us to build our alternatives portfolio of which hedge funds are a part. I still believe that to be a valid role. An issue with hedge funds has been underperformance in recent years. In 2018, they fell on average 4.7% across the board. And while there were some anomalies that beat the markets, Ash has a theory or two as to why institutional faith has been in limbo for the asset space. The part that I think has been somewhat disappointing to a number of investors is the the lack of actual real performance, relative performance, the idea that you think that if markets equity beta becomes broadly negative, that the hedge fund exposure will bail you out and be countercyclical. That has been largely untested. And in some of the volatility we've seen lately, the hedge funds haven't delivered. So I think there's a question mark about what's going on in the hedge fund area. And some have had flashes of brilliance. Bridgewater obviously had a terrific year in 2018. I think one of the other things this may well relate to is Dodd-Frank. If you think about the changes in the investment industry and the banking industry post Dodd-Frank, you've seen a lot of investment firms get out of the prop desk business. There was a time when, through prime broking, cap intro, and the businesses of the large investment firms and investment banking firms, there were very close interrelationships between hedge funds and Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, fill in the blanks, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. And it's possible that there was just enough proximity, that there were some informational advantages. And when those prop desks went away, and those financial institutions went out of that part of their business, there was less opportunity for cross-fertilization among their hedge fund clientele and the institutions themselves. It could be that the loss of whatever that little informational advantage may have been has impaired the ability of a lot of these funds to add value. 2019 is sparking lots of investor concerns, such as a possible recession. The Florida SBA chief shares some of his plights and how we got there, starting with the central banks. Obviously, the biggest thing that everyone is very aware of is a major change in central bank liquidity stance around the world. We're coming out of a period that we've just seen the longest, most orchestrated central bank liquidity provision across major industrialized economies of the planet Earth 
longest period of that activity in history, perhaps the only one. It's ending. That has ramifications uh, for asset values, liquidity, credit availability, etc. That said, there's ample evidence that most economies are still reasonably strong and growth is okay if not great in a lot of places. You can look at employment, wages are starting to show up, wage pressures in the United States, availability of labor, commodity prices not so much, particularly energy prices, there's been a real disconnect. But I think if you just look at the economics around the world, they're generally pretty good. I don't see anything that's really alarming. Markets tend to lead economies and anticipate issues. And you've seen a couple of things happen. You've seen the first real interruption or interruptions of the, the equity bull market uptrend that's been so dominant in the recent past. Fourth quarter of 2018 certainly was a period that, that, that saw some real air pockets in valuation and shook up a few investors. I think what markets are realizing is we're late in the cycle, and it's really not a good idea at this point in time for any of the major contributors to stability to be disrupted. Geopolitical issues are another candidate for economic fears. Rising populism and nationalism in the Eurozone and parts of Asia have led to worry, especially this year with Brexit's deadline swiftly approaching. We've seen some insertions of uncertainty that have arisen from the policy side of government, not the central banking side. We're obviously involved now in some trade conflicts around the world that started largely in the United States. We're questioning treaties that have been in place since the last world war. The whole global order is in question and in flux. And if you add to that the rather pronounced outbreaks we've seen of nationalist and populist politics in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Western Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, and even some in Asia and Southeast Asia, it's surprising. It's also a source of uncertainty that's not helpful to markets. Brexit is a great example of that, where populism and nationalism took voice through the vote of the UK to leave the European Union without, I don't think, any clear understanding of the electorate of what they were really doing or what the consequences might be or how they might manage through the potential negatives. And what we've seen unfold over the couple of years since that vote took place is a very disconcerting political dysfunction that has every indication that it's not going to end well absent potentially the, the British people being given an opportunity to revote the question and maybe change their mind. For these concerns, Ash has a few choice words for how his CIO peers can mitigate these choppy waters. It's a time to really, really understand valuations and understand business models and understand what the advantages, unique attributes, and frailties of business models and of associated asset valuations are. Because if you really have a clear grasp of that, then volatility and dislocation are not things to fear. They're things to welcome because they're opportunities to exercise judgments 
and take steps that will benefit you down the road when whatever the dislocation or period of heightened volatility may be reverts to a more normal environment. As for the trade war, possibly the largest topic on a CIO's mind, many are wondering if and when the U.S. will experience a major pain point. We've seen shades of this in Apple and Ford, but some of these big-picture instances have already started with the farmers, who have been hit the hardest. We've seen localized expressions of pain points to date. You've seen a lot of pain in the agricultural area because one of the Chinese responses early on to the aggressive tariff initiatives and challenges to China emanating out of Washington was to target U.S. agricultural exports, most notably soybeans, which coincidentally China is the largest consumer in the world of soybeans, and one of the top two or three producers is the United States. And soybeans are very plentiful. Brazil grows an awful lot of soybeans. So the U.S. doesn't have any corner on that market. And to the extent the Chinese is the biggest consumer say, you know what, we're going to dial back on our consumption of U.S. soybeans, they can replace that soybean sourcing from other countries than the United States. So our farmers have really taken a blow. Pork is another thing. China is the biggest consumer of pork in the world. There have been efforts to tighten tariffs on U.S. pork coming into China. And to be blunt, I think part of it is a strategy on their part that's designed to hurt the president of the United States among key parts of the electorate who are big supporters of his, notably the agricultural community, specifically Midwestern and Southern soybean farmers and pig farmers. Another issue with emerging markets is the impact of equities and currencies, which are one of the toughest bets an investor can make. If you look around the world broadly, one of the phenomena about the current investment landscape that's challenging is things are priced up. Equities in most developed countries are pretty well priced. They've come in a bit in the U.S. with the declines of Q418, but they're still, they're not screaming cheap, that's for sure. Same could be said of Western Europe. The uncertainty around the U.K. has depressed their prices a bit, and there are probably some opportunities there, but you have to be willing to accept the sort of uncertainty we just discussed. Probably one of the few areas that looks cheap is emerging markets, and the obvious question marks around that are Number one, to what degree are the individual emerging economies dependent upon commodity prices? Because if they're highly commodity dependent and whatever that commodity that they're linked to is not doing well or their exogenous factors depressing its price, notably energy, then those economies are going to be challenged. The other issue you, of course, have is currencies you can make a very wise fundamental choice on an investment in an emerging market, but if the currency in which that investment is essentially denominated collapses, there's a very good chance that your fundamental investment judgment will be swamped and sunk by a currency move that you didn't anticipate. Currencies are notably volatile and fickle and hard to call. And very few institutions that I'm aware of will try and make an active currency judgment because it's perceived to be like a commodity price judgment. Probably 80% of the time you're going to be wrong.
that's not a lot of incentive to embrace that. Believe it or not, all this chaos surrounding emerging markets have not wavered the SBA's view on the space. On the contrary, it's actually enhanced it. Our view in EM is classic Warren Buffett statement, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. Anytime something is broadly disliked, that's exactly the time you should be looking at it closely. The old saw about shopping for straw hats in a February snowstorm, it actually makes sense. So just to fill in that statement a little bit, we're working on developing private equity relationships in the EM range. We're looking at real estate opportunities there. It's early days in both of those. We're not doing much directly yet, but we're doing things through partners that have the local expertise and have professionals on the ground in these various places where we can use an investment partner as an extension of staff to add to our own expertise and complement what we can do ourselves. Uneasy is the head that lies the crown. That's Shakespearean for CIO's job summary. Ash's volume of knowledge calls for the occasional rough evening. He's what's top of mind for him and a number of his peers. There are two things that keep me up at night. Anytime I'm working on something and I feel we have an exposure that puts us at risk and I haven't put my own finger on what I believe all the relevant variables to that are and what our course ought to be for managing it, that will keep me up. Oftentimes these things are political in nature, which is why they're so tough to figure out, because they may not be driven by fact and logic. They may be driven by the objectives of an individual that have nothing to do with anything but that individual's aspirations. And if you're not used to thinking that way, we are trained to reason deductively based on fact, on law, on mathematics, on theory, on probabilities, on statistics. That's how people in this business think. And when you're dealing with something completely out of the box that may be unbounded in reality, and it could be any number of things, but that's the kind of thing that I struggle with because those are things that my investment professionals, notwithstanding their extraordinary talent or our extended orbit of partners on the street, who I think collectively are as talented as any group of people in the world, that isn't helpful on something like a political problem because it's not grounded in the sort of fact and information that we all traffic in. And that makes it challenging. But that's part of the value add that I have. I started my career in public service in the legislative branch in Florida, worked in the executive branch as well. So I have a very good understanding of how people in public leadership think and the sorts of pressures they're subject to and how they have to deal with the media and all that sort of stuff. And we can often craft solutions that are benevolent resolutions of conflicts that otherwise might become pretty destructive. With such responsibilities as tackling the daily challenges of running a titanic state retirement system, folks often forget that investment professionals are people too, with their own unique hobbies and interests. We've gotten to know Ash Williams, the CIO, but who's the man behind the plan? Believe it or not, he's not so different from you and I. 
Well, two things. Number one, I love the arts. So I love music. I love photography. I started my career as a news photographer and worked my way through college shooting news pictures and sometimes could link that to my love of music by photographing people like the Rolling Stones or you know Bob Dylan or any number of other big names, Leon Russell, a few presidents of the United States over the years. A lot of interesting characters I've photographed uh, earlier in life and I love the visual arts. I love painting. I was at a dance performance just a few nights ago that was one of the most stunning things I've ever seen in my life. I guess that's a left brain thing that's helpful. Creativity, different perspectives on things, very useful in the investment world. And the other thing, because a lot of what we do is sedentary, you're pacing around in a conference room or you're pacing around your office on the phone or you're on a trading desk. I love things that are physical. I like to get outside and work on things. As corny as it is, just working around the house, I really like. I like to ride motorcycles. I travel all the time for business, and that means an awful lot of time on airplanes and in cabs, sitting in traffic. So the idea of jumping on a motorcycle in North Florida and riding out into the countryside, you know, as the sun is coming up and getting down around the ocean or being in the backwoods of Georgia and flying through space when you're the only one on a road and motorcycles give you a contact with the environment you don't get in a car. Everything that's a smell, a change in air temperature as you go through a shady spot or a low area or a sunny spot, you pick up a lot of things you don't get otherwise and it, it's very rich. I also love animals. I have a dog and the, the dog and I walk a lot. Getting exercise is important. Clears the head, keeps you alive, helps you focus. So, yeah, nothing fancy. Thanks again for listening to the Chief Investment Officer Podcast. We'd like to thank Ash Williams of the Florida State Board of Administration for stopping by and giving us a moment of his time to share his outlooks on the year ahead, as well as give us a peek into his personal life. For more engaging institutional content, check us out at AICIO.com and feel free to find and interact with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Chris Butera, and we'll see you again real soon.